part. Though this road be scarred with trial and pain, is paved with lavish grace, knowing him will be my greatest gain, his throne my resting place. What great promise we have there, especially after having these prayer requests and seeing that pain and trial and difficulty, knowing that even through that there is gain and purpose in that suffering. Well, good. Well, if you have your Bibles, please feel free to turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In reflection this week, I don't know if I introduced the series that we're doing so far in the Advent season. I call it Advent in the Details. One of the things I'm focusing on are some details that are ignored or not really plumbed as much during the Advent season. You know, we have those same, uh, generally those same passages that we use. Same texts lead to similar sermons and repetition of themes and motifs, and that's perfectly fine and good. There's an expectation that that will be done, because no matter how often you read them, them, they're preached in your midst, there will always be learning. There will always be growth, because it is God's Word that is living and active, constantly changing, revealing to us the glory of His Son. Nonetheless, throughout this Advent season, what I thought I would do is I would pick up these little details in some of these Advent stories that aren't talked about as much, but nonetheless shed light on the incarnation of Jesus Christ in a way that you might not have thought about before. So this morning, we're going to transition to Matthew chapter 2. Last week, we talked in Matthew chapter 1, namely about the genealogy and the naming of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, and how all those names in the genealogy pointed Toward that time, that realization, that hope that God would bring salvation. Yahweh saves Jesus by being in their midst in a way that he hadn't been previously, but was finally and fully realized in the God-man Jesus. Now, one of the things that we saw in that genealogy that we didn't belabor too much is that there were certain individuals, notably women, that came into that genealogy from outside the traditional family of faith, outside the Old Testament church outside of Israel, anticipating a time in the fullness of time where God, through Christ, would open those doors, spread His gospel to the nations so that many sons and daughters might come in from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the realization that was hinted at in that genealogy actually comes to us full force this morning as we look at these magi, these wise ones, This is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his luminary in its rising. Do you remember that name, Zerah, rising in the genealogy? Can't miss these connections. We saw his luminary in its rising. And we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard, he was greatly disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them, Where is the Messiah to be born? They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet. This is by Micah, what we saw earlier with the McCracken's reading. And you, Bethlehem, In the land of Judah, by no means are you the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly sent for the Magi and ascertained precisely from them the time of the luminary's appearance. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, inquire precisely concerning the child. In other words, find out exactly who he is and where he's at. But as soon as you find him, inform me, so that I may also come and worship him. After listening to the king, they departed. And behold, the luminary, which they had seen in the east, went continually before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the luminary, they rejoiced exceedingly with a very great joy. And when they came to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they prostrated themselves and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chest and presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they returned by a different road to their country. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we have entered your presence this morning with gladness, with worship, both in song, word, and prayer. Now as we turn to meditate on your holy word, what you say, we confess that it is you who are God. You have made us and we are yours. Your people, the sheep of your pasture. So we ask that you might speak to our hearts. Speak through every distraction. Speak through every conflict and every obstruction to our hearts. Lead us in truth and understanding so that through the power of the Spirit offered to us by our great shepherd Jesus, we might hear what you have to say to us unto life. Amen. Well, you see this morning that our title is We Three Kings of Orient Are. You might know this popular carol. Kids, you know this carol? It goes, we, okay, yeah, we three kings. I'm sorry, I'm going to sing. It's brutal, right? Yeah, Liam, you want to sing for me? You know that one? Good. Okay, we know this. It goes, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain more, and mountain following yonder star. Good, right? Anybody know when that was written? Like a long time ago? Did I hear that? Um, yeah. That's the one. Is that there we go? It was the, okay, well, it was in the 19th century, 1857. Is that what you were going to say, Jared? Lord of the Rings? Um, okay. Do they sing it in that? You know, like, maybe I miss it. Okay, right? That's kind of, I guess they do travel quite a bit in that regard. Um, you know, they got to destroy the ring. Um, so, 1857, right? And it was by John Henry Hopkins, Jr. He was an Episcopalian rector. So, I won't... Re- the entire song, and we just sang it a little bit. But we know it, essentially it chronicles this journey that we've read about this morning when these three, what are commonly called wise men, or magi, or even kings, right, as they follow on this journey to have a brief, or as we can tell, a brief visit with the king. But questions remain, right? Questions that have plagued both interested and uninterested people for generation upon generation about these kings. Some of these questions are, who were these magi? Who were these guys? They take, make such a brief 
showing within the Gospel of Matthew receive almost no mention elsewhere. How many actually traveled with the caravan? So the song says how many? But does the text say three? It doesn't, right? It's just a plural for magi. Normally we associate three with what? The three gifts. So we think one gave one gift to Jesus. So that's why we get three. But the text doesn't actually say. It could have been a whole caravan of magi. Or maybe even just one or two. Where did they journey from? It doesn't say where they came from. It doesn't give details about their origin. Not specific details at least. And what sources actually revealed to them the birth of Christ? Who told them? Or what text did they have that said that the... Uh-oh, okay, if you, t- you might going to ruin my thunder here if you answer this question. Um, who told them that they were to go and to find the Christ in Bethlehem? Did they just have the text? Well, our sermon today is going to explore some of these questions intriguing historical details that we see, but it shouldn't overshadow the fundamental enigma here that Matthew presents, the conundrum with which we need to wrestle. And that is, how could the leaders in Jerusalem, how could the leaders of the Jews, in full possession of the light of God's revelation, they knew, right? We'll see this. When asked about the birth of the Messiah, there's, there's no hesitation. They point exactly to Micah, what we, which we've read at least twice today. How could those in possession of the fullness of God's revelation, living in Jerusalem, just five miles away from Bethlehem, how could they arrive at such a drastically different conclusion and response to the announcement of this birth than those foreigners who have traveled roughly 900 miles through dangerous terrain, to find this Messiah. To participate in what we've just sung in this Getty song, the most tremendous moment in human history. So let's look at verses 1 through 2 here. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east. So we have something of a provenance, right? Something of an origin. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his luminary and its rising. We have come to worship him. Matthew relates to us here that it's on the advent of the God-man Jesus. We see these Magi appear from the east, and they're searching for the king of the Jews. So he introduces this word magi. What does that mean? What connotations do you draw from magi? It's variously translated as wise ones or kings. But do you think of them? What way do you think of them as scholars? What do you picture in your mind? You see these guys. Are they scholars, right? So do they have ink stains on their fingers, right? Probably splattered on their face. Are they kings, right? Are they dressed in royal garb and regalia? Are they aristocracy or politicians? What, what do you think of when you think of them? Are they fortune tellers? Diplomats, okay, maybe diplomats. Are they fortune tellers, though? Or magicians, diviners? Do they look to you like maybe Jafar from Aladdin or something along those lines? You know, like what do you picture in your mind? Camel jockey? <laughs> that's, that's one I didn't think of, but I would expect you to have thought of that, Ray. You know, like, is that Astronomers, right? So they're always looking at the sky. 
What do you think of here? For thousands of years, tradition has labored over these type of questions, trying to understand these figures. It was Tertullian, I believe, in the 3rd century who identified them as kings. And as early as the 6th century, we see they're starting to be called three wise men. Of course, three originating, as I said earlier, from the gifts. But they also posited that these three wise men didn't actually come from the same location. Apparently, certain traditions have, originating, like I said, in the 500s AD, certain traditions had that they all converged at the same time from different regions, from Egypt, from Persia, some, from somewhere in Europe, and they came through the luminary to Jerusalem at the same time. And their names and tradition are Melchior, Balthazar, and Gaspar. Did you know that? that they, have, they actually have names. And it's kind of funny, if you know those names, you can watch various shows or read various books, and they try to throw those names in there when it's associated with people of importance or, or eruditish, you know, they have secret knowledge. Traditions. Sometimes these names are used in connection to various literature and mediums with these type of people. So that's what we have here. But the wise men, that's the church's tradition. But what does Scripture say about these individuals? What does the Old and New Testament say about them? About this hidden future knowledge that they had? Well, Scripture actually, when it associates the word magi, Scripture actually normally associates that with improper practice. Those who look to celestial bodies or dreams as practitioners, or even guardless charlatans. We see these guys, these magi, even called as much, for instance, in the book of Daniel. When Daniel is set against those individuals who try to divine the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and fail to do so, whereas Daniel, with complete access to the Lord, not with tricks or methods or practices, but with access from the Lord, is rightly able to understand the dream. The Magi, these wise ones, stand on the opposite side of the aisle from him. So in that case, they're adversaries, practitioners of improper and failing arts. And we see this theme kind of continued in Simon, in Acts, Simon Magus. Do you remember this individual? Do you remember what he tried to do when he saw the apostles, notably Peter, performing miracles? Do you remember what he did? He couldn't reproduce them, so he ran to Peter and he said, Tell me your secret. Give me the Holy Spirit and I'll pay you money. He was a magi in the strict sense of it. And that word for simony, where you buy some type of office or some type of position, you have to use your means to do it improperly, is actually credited to the same individual, Simon Magus. So is that the type of magi that we have here? It doesn't seem to be what we're looking for in a real way, because these magi actually do something good. So how did these magi, so different from some, from some of these other individuals that we've seen, how did they arrive at the conclusion that the Messiah had been born? Well, the most reasonable is that originating potentially in Babylon, as I just mentioned, those other magi with Daniel, in Babylon, originating in Babylon, they'd had access to the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament church, of the Jews who had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon in the 6th century B.C. So seeing these scriptures, they had embraced them. They had been evangelized by the church as it had moved from Palestine to Babylon and had embraced the truths of sacred scripture of the Old Testament. And they had plumbed them 
searched them, studied them, embraced them, awaiting the birth of the Messiah. Others have posited that they actually came to it from foreign religions. Religions that weren't biblical, that did not worship the true God, nonetheless, in God's grace and providence, had small hints, small truths that were shrouded in mystery and darkness, nonetheless, small truths that pointed them to the realization of the Messiah. Some of these, such as Zoroastrianism, for instance, looked forward to a time where there would be one individual who would be born to fight and defeat evil on account of his human brothers and sisters, so that through his own sacrifice, worship of God might continue. That was a pagan religion with all different types of ties and practices and beliefs. Nonetheless, there was a hint of truth in it. That salvation and relationship with God would have to come through one individual who would make a sacrifice. And that, that shouldn't surprise us. Scholars throughout the history of the church, most recently I think C.S. Lewis, has noted that we should expect to see that. If God's glory is written in the wonders of creation, we should expect to see that those who are made in His image can see bits of that, even if they don't see them rightly, as if they're in a dark room, just reaching out and touching and feeling. See, God's revelation gives light and understanding and truth to it. So maybe it was one of these. Maybe they had stumbled upon it through their own religious tradition. See, ultimately, we don't really know how exactly they came to it. However, what we do know is that they came to it rightly. And the Lord revealed it to them in the fullness of time. So that leaving everything they had, they embarked on what was a significantly dangerous journey. 900 miles. Do you remember? I think that took Ezra something around four months to do. So four months they followed this star until it landed on Jerusalem. And there they came expecting something. In that pursuit in the wisdom of God revealed to them. I think ultimately they had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. I think that's what they had. They had God's Word, and God confirmed that Word through sign, in this case, this luminary. After that long journey, four months, bearing gifts, you can imagine, that would not have been without temptation for those who would try to rob them along the way. So they probably came with a significant entourage to protect them during their travels, they arrive in Jerusalem expecting to find something. But notice what it is they find. In anticipation, knowing that the Messiah has been born, like I said, positing that they had sacred scripture before them, in addition to the sign testifying to its truth, that luminary, right? that's what it does. The star testifies to the truth of God's word. They probably arrived in Jerusalem expecting to find a party, a celebration. What do you think they talked about on that journey? They probably said, Jerusalem is probably going wild right now. Their king, the son of David, has been born. This long-awaited Messiah who would save them from their sins, 
who would be their victorious king, who would establish a kingdom of peace and prosperity, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This one has finally been born in Bethlehem, the true son of David, whose kingdom is full of peace and security and without end. That's what they probably expected to find. And when they got there, they would see this royal baby surrounded by guards, surrounded by nobles, bowing and worshiping in homage. His chamber replete with gifts from from floor to ceiling. That little baby in this luxurious manger, probably wrapped in purple, snuggled with his mother and nursemaids. That's probably what they expected to find. But what do they find instead? Do they find that type of reception? I mean, if we have any doubt that this was probably what they expected, let me do this. I'll give you an illustration, modern day illustration. Not too long ago, I don't know how many years, not too long ago, the next generation of the British royal line was born. Right? This is Prince George. I think it was he was born, right? I think he's like four or five. I mean, he might be older you know, now five or plus. He was born, right? And at that time, there was celebration across England. It was. I actually went on the website. Did you know that the royal family has their own website? Um, yes, I don't recommend viewing it. You know, you, you have better things to do with your time. But for you, for you, I did, right? And so I went on and I found, I wanted to see, I know, I, I took one for the team here, right? And I went on and I looked up Prince George. I wanted to see what the royal family said. And here's what they said about them, about him, that is. Prince George was born at 424 on the 22nd of July, 2013, at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington, London. As the first child of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, he is the third in line to the throne. So he's an important dude. And news of his birth was celebrated the world over. The Duke and Duchess left hospital with their new son on the 23rd of July. They paused on the steps of the Lindo Wing to allow the world to catch a first glimpse of the newborn prince. The Duke of Cambridge then safely installed his new son into the car seat. That's my favorite detail. (laughs) Safely, Safely installed his new son into the car seat before he drove his family home to Kensington Palace. Right. That was celebration of the birth of Prince George, third in line to the throne, celebrated world over as he was placed snugly in his velvet car seat to drive to Kensington Palace. Right. So that was it. But is that the reception that these kings, these wise men find when they arrive in Jerusalem? Is that what they? No, it's the exact opposite. Right. Instead. They present themselves before an aged monarch, one who was formerly famous for his statesmanship and his administration and various building projects that he had undertaken in Jerusalem, but who at that point had become infamous for his cruelty and paranoia, paranoia that is, going as far as to murder his wife and his children for fear of usurpation in his waning years. This is Herod the Great, king of Judea. This is the same man who feared that when he died, no one would mourn his name 
So he ordered the execution of prominent men at the same time so that the city would be plunged in lamentation, be plunged in mourning. And so when the Magi attend this man, infamous for this type of cruelty and insanity, he expresses vexation and worry for his throne. And all of Jerusalem participates in it. Notice that. When they see this entourage, when they see this caravan arrive, they share Herod's worry and distress and great angst. But don't you get the impression that Matthew goes a little bit further here? Notice the type of contrast that he is setting up. On the one hand, we have these men who have traveled from such a great distance, outside of the Old Testament church, not knowing exactly what they're looking for or what they will find, having minimal access to God's revealed Word, but delighted, overjoyed, anticipatory in the celebration in which they hope to participate. And on the other hand, we have a contrast here. With God's people, not excited, not joyful, not even aware the birth of their Messiah. And when it comes to light that he has been born, when these Gentiles from afar reveal that to them, rather than rejoice with them, rather than join them in the celebration, rather than begin it, as you might expect, what do they do? They respond in terror and angst and worry. Or at the very least, in disinterest. Those, for instance, as Matthew tells us, those who should be most involved and have authority of both the political and the religious affairs. That's where Herod goes, right? He goes to the scribes and the elders. He goes to those who should know the scriptures. He goes to those who should have authority over God's people, both in the sphere of the political, but also in the sphere of the religious. He goes to them and he says, what did we miss? What's going on? What? What should our reaction be? In his heart, he's thinking, should I be worried? Is my time finally done here? And notice how they respond. They're like, yeah, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And then it just peters out. It leaves there. And these men, at the instruction of Herod, progress by themselves to Bethlehem. Nobody goes with them. Not even Herod. Herod is worried here. He asks, think of it, this is unwise. He asks these magi, he thinks he's duped them and tricked them, and he asks them to return to tell him where they found the Messiah. Of course he intends to kill this child. He intends to get rid of it. He would do it to his own family, and he wouldn't hesitate to do it to some commonplace citizen and their children in Bethlehem. But notice, it's so insignificant to him that he doesn't even send anybody with them. I know that there are dramatizations out there, various mediums that talk about it, but he doesn't even send anybody with them. They go by themselves. These Gentiles, these ignorant foreigners, travel to Bethlehem by themselves. And notice, as they do so, that luminary reappears. It had gone dim in Jerusalem. That sign that they had longed for went away and returned only after these Gentiles traveled. It galvanizes them. 
It's a reward to them and their faithfulness that despite that defeat that they must have felt when arriving in Jerusalem, despite that defeat that God blesses them, he rewards their wisdom and their pursuit with the sign to take them to Bethlehem. You see, God was fulfilling passages like Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. These men are bringing good news. Not only that the Messiah has been born, but that his reign is not just for Jerusalem. That his reign is not just for Palestine. That his reign is not just for the Near East, but that his reign is universal worldwide. See, that's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 72, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. You see, this is the wisdom of God that was rejected by those in Jerusalem, but was embraced by these Gentiles from afar. That infant that they will visit that one before whom they will prostrate themselves in worship, giving gifts. He will rule the world, make it his kingdom, and establish a rule in security and peace. Now another little known detail, and one that we'll conclude on, another little known detail is that normally when you had foreign dignitaries that would present themselves in the court of a king, because that's what it is, it's not a normal throne room, it's not what we might see Alexander the Great arranging his entourage, arranging his court in, in every kingdom that he had conquered. It certainly was not the throne room of the Roman emperor in Rome as he met foreign dignitaries and aristocrats and diplomats that came to pay homage to him. But when this diplo- dip, these diplomats, as Richard said, when these dignitaries, when these wise men representing all the nations of the world When they bowed before Jesus, the expectation would have been that even as they present gifts to him, he will give a gift back to them. And the text tells us that that's not the gift. I I suppose we can say, as God, he gifts them with the dream to return them to their country, unharmed and unhindered by Herod. But notice, there's a, a waiting expectation. You expect this family. You expect this child to somehow gift these three wise men with something in the proper response for national diplomacy and relations. But Matthew leaves that hanging there. Because remember, he is Jesus. God saves. He is Emmanuel. And these wise men leave and they don't leave disappointed. Because the gift is himself. That's the key here. The gift that Jesus gives is the gift of eternal life and salvation for all that will go before Him and prostrate themselves in humility, in gratitude for that greatest gift He will give at the cross. So I conclude today. And sometimes when we preach texts like this narratives, we ask, have, have to ask ourselves, where's the law? Where's the gospel? Where's our response in this? How do we find that in the story? But the thing that I see prevalent, at least for us this morning, is that there are two groups here. There are two groups. 
You have those leaders and authorities in Jerusalem who have God's revealed word, who have his scriptures, who have it before them, who had it before them for generation upon generation upon generation. They had worship services like this. Those had not ceased to be done, whether or not they were exiled in Babylon or had returned to the land. And when presented with Messiah, what was their response? Apathy and disinterest. On the other hand, we have these Gentiles. These men who from far off see their need. When given the revelation of God's word, they cling to it and run. They leave Jerusalem having been quoted from Micah. They leave Jerusalem and they go. And what do they go to do? They go to bow down and to worship. So we ask ourselves, in this gospel proclamation that Matthew gives, which camp are we? Which, which camp are we? Whether we come from families of faith or come from outside, when presented with the revelation of the Messiah in God's Word, testified to by luminaries, not the ones in the skies, but in our hearts, as we change lives, as people call in repentance and look outside of themselves and their pride. What is our response in that regard? Is it disinterest? Apathy? Or do we, like these magi, do we bow before Christ? Do we prostrate ourselves before Him week after week in worship and gratitude and thanksgiving for that greatest gift that He has given us? himself. Let's pray.